Okay, so I would love it if you guys would open your Bibles with me to Romans 3. So we're going to do something a little bit different. So we're actually not going to have the scripture on the screen anymore. And some of you are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you, Jordan. Okay, here's the reasoning for it is we talked about this and we... It's weird that I'm saying this, but I don't want you to just take my word for it when I tell you stuff. I, like, the final authority is the Word of God. It's the Bible. And I want you to actually see it in the Word. And, and part of the reason why we put it on the screen is, is if you don't have a Bible or something like that, we want you to see the Scripture. But I think what that does a little bit is um, you start just kind of looking at it, but not actually like flipping through the Bible as I'm talking. And so we want to switch this up a little bit. And we want to actually kind of force you to be looking at the Word as I'm going through it. So if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We got a bunch of Bibles in the back. You can sneak back there and grab one. And I mean, that's our gift to you. You can have it. Um, but you also can pull up the Bible app on your phone. I use version, so you can just go download it now if you need it. But we're going to be in Romans 3. And if you guys, okay, so I mean, you heard Isaac talk about it. And if you've been around through this semester, like the news has been a little rough, right? And Paul's going to He's going to get kind of one more jab in about human nature before he kind of flips it into into grace. And I was trying to figure out how to summarize for you guys what human nature is like without being quite so depressing, which is difficult because human nature is a little depressing. But I was thinking about this. So I see this in kids, right? So have you ever just known like a punk kid? You know what I'm talking about? So I worked at a kindergarten for a while at a school with kindergarten kids for a while, so I knew a lot of punk kids. And, and you guys know those, those stickers on the back of cars, like the bumper stickers, where it's that, that little kid that's just peeing on something? You know what I'm talking about? Have you seen this? If you haven't, you're like, this is weird, dude. So it's just this little kid like on the back of a Chevy, and he's just like peeing on the Ford symbol, and he's just kind of smirking, like, yeah, that's what's up. So I know the real kid that that sticker was based off of. So there was this kid named Carlos that just peed on stuff. That was like his thing. So we'd go out for recess, and I'd and I coach him up ahead of time, like, yo, Carlos, let's not pee on anything today. And he'd be like, all right. And then we'd go outside. Five minutes later, Carlos peeing on the slide. Carlos peeing on the fence. Carlos peeing on another kid. No, that didn't happen. He never peed on another kid. But I was... I thought he might, and here's the thing, is Carlos would just kind of look at me like while he was peeing with that same little grin as that bumper sticker, and it was just kind of this like, screw you, man, like I'm doing what I want, and, and I would be like, Carlos, dude, so I'd have to like pull him inside and take him out of recess, and he'd get in trouble, and then he would get ticked at me for him being in trouble, so that's what we're like. Not so much the peeing on stuff thing, hopefully. Uh, but that's what we're like. And, and even, okay, even with Carlos, right? Hopefully nobody taught him to do that. Hopefully nobody was coaching him up, like, here's what you're going to do, man. At recess today, you're just going to drop pants, you're just going to pee on stuff. Dude did that out of the overflow of his own nature, right? Like, that's how messed up human beings are, is even as little kids, we're already rebellious, Right? You, we already don't want to be told what to do, and we get mad when somebody tries to tell us what to do. And, and Romans 1 and 2 have been kind of unpacking that nature in us, where God wants to talk to us about the way that he created for us to live. And we kind of just look at him like, forget you, man. 
Like, I don't want to hear any of that. And then when, when he lets us have what we want, when he gives us the punishment that we deserve, we're mad at him. That's the human nature. And so this is how my, my section is going to start. So I'm starting in verse 9, Romans 3, verse 9. Um, I'll actually start, just start reading in verse 10. It says this, As it is written, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay, so I just want to be clear on this. If you hear that, or if you've heard the last couple weeks throughout the book of Romans, and you still want to cling to the idea that you have something to offer God, or if you're still tempted to kind of look at the person next to you and be like, well, I'm, I'm, I might be messed up, but I'm not that bad, or if you want to kind of claim that the human nature in general really isn't that messed up, here's what you need to know. You are challenging the authority of God. Like the God who decides if you take another breath or not. You're looking at him and saying, yeah, man, I don't really believe you. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to believe what I believe. And it just, that doesn't seem like a great place to be. And so I'm not going to read the the rest of this kind of long section about how screwed up we are, uh, because I think it's summarized pretty well in verse 23. Verse 23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God wrote his glory into creation. Right? Like what have you ever had that moment in creation where you've where you've walked outside and you've you've seen a mountain or you've seen a, a sunset and you've just been like stunned? Right? That's the glory of God. And here's the thing, you're the pinnacle of his creation. You're the centerpiece of his work. You are the thing that's supposed to declare his glory to the world. That's how he created you. You're supposed to be more beautiful and more amazing than anything you've ever seen in creation. And I do want you to hear that, by the way. Like, that's not the main point here. But your life matters. You have meaning. You're created in the image of God. But this is what happened, is you fell and you destroyed the image of that glory. And verse 18 says, because of that fall, we no longer fear God. We no longer fear him. Have you ever had that like hand in the cookie jar moment where you got caught doing something you're not supposed to do? So my mom and I had a good relationship and she kind of let me do whatever, but her thing was curfew, like so help me you will be home on time. And she was straight up scary when she was mad. And here's the, here, here's the problem with my house is the steps are creaky. And that's a, your worst nightmare for a teenager that's trying to sneak into the house, right? But I was going to test the limit, so I was going to go for it. So I mapped out, literally like practiced during the day while she was gone, which steps creaked where. And so I figured out that if I walked up the left side, the first two steps, it wouldn't creak. And then all the way over to the right side. But then I got to the last five and like they all creaked. And so I just tried to be sneaky. I'm not very good at being sneaky, right? So I try and do this thing, and I'm like, and then it's like, and then I pause, pregnant pause, like maybe I'm going to be fine, and then I hear, Jordan Dean, she used the middle name. That's when you know, like, you're in trouble. And here's the deal. I walked in, and I had no excuse, right? Like, I knew what I was doing, she knew what I was doing, and it was terrifying, 
that the fear of God put in me in that moment. Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. There's going to be a day when you stand before the God of the universe who oversees armies of angels and he will catch you and he'll ask you to give an account of your life. And here's the thing about that God is he's seen everything. He's seen what you've done in the darkness that you don't want anybody to know about. He sees your motivations, your thoughts, your feelings. He sees everything about you. It's going to be exposed before him, and you will not have an excuse for the way that you've lived your life. And if you don't have a solution for that problem, you should be afraid. You should be. And even if we know better, here's our temptation as human beings is we want to we wanna just clean ourselves up when we sense that issue, when we sense the brokenness of our own nature, when we see a God who could stand in judgment over us, we want to just kind of clean ourselves up and try and pretend like everything's going to be okay. That's called following the law. So what's the law? The law is the list of kind of rules and ways that we should live that God wrote for us in the Bible and that he also wrote on our heart, your conscience, right? The stuff that you know that's right or wrong. But I want to tell you what the purpose of the law is, okay? This is kind of backwards from what we would think. So I want you to pay attention to it. Verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So listen, this is the purpose of the law, the the purpose of the rules that God gave us about how we should live. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is to show you that you're sinful. So how we tend to think about the law is we think about it as a syllabus, right? So like, it's not necessarily fun. You don't love syllabus day, except for that you don't get any homework. That's not bad. Or maybe you do. If you do, that's messed up. If you get homework on syllabus day, that's messed up. Um, But we think about the law like a syllabus where it gives a description. Hello. I think we're good. All right. All right. I'm good, Dave. Thanks, man. Uh, we think about the law like a syllabus where it gives a description about how, about what we should do, right? What are the baseline requirements? And if you fulfill those requirements, then you're going to get a passing grade. But here's what the law actually is. It's one of those, you must be this tall to ride signs in a, at an amusement park. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's got that like line that says, hey, you got to be up to the line, otherwise you can't ride. And I've heard it's a really frustrating experience to be too short to ride. Never experienced that because I'm not short. Um, But, yeah, 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 you guys see what I did there. Um, But here's here's the point, is you don't go stand under that line and stare at it and hope that it's going to make you taller. What's the point? You're not tall enough. You don't get on. And that's the point of the law. It's actually to demonstrate for you that you don't measure up, that you don't have what it takes to get... What do I do, Dad? What's oh, the beard? It's the beard, guys. <laughs> Beards are good for a lot of things, but not for this mic. All right. We good? All right. We'll see what happens. All right. So you don't measure up to the law. That's the point. We kind of lost the momentum there. All right. Next point. <laughs> Let's go back and think about it and feel it later. All right. <laughs> so... 
We don't measure up. There's nothing that we can do to kind of earn our way into the people of God. And that's the bad news. But we're finally going to get to the turn. So we're going to get to the paragraph that some people think, and I, I agree with them, is the most important paragraph ever written in the history of the world. All right? You ready? Here we go. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Okay, so we got some really big words that are coming up that are really important in the Christian life. You just saw the first one, justified. And then we're going to, in a minute, we're going to see redemption and propitiation, all right? So we're, we're dropping some like theological words. And so this is essentially what I want to do for the rest of the time is, is I want to unpack what those words mean because they're so significant, they're so important, and they're all kind of coming back to the same basic truth, but they're coming at it from different angles. And so I just want to focus in on those three words and unpack them and kind of give you some illustrations that will hope, hopefully kind of get your eyes onto the main thing that it's trying to communicate. And so the first one is justification. So what's justification? It's the moment when God gives you his righteousness. Justification is the moment when God gives you his righteousness. All right, so, so it's a legal word. It talks about your legal standing with God. So, so think courtroom, okay? You're in the divine courtroom. And your case is brought before a judge. God. Only the freaky thing about this court is that he knows everything about you. Imagine a judge that can read your mind that knows exactly when you're telling the truth and exactly when you're lying. And God is going to pass down a verdict on you. And here's the verdict. Hopefully this isn't a surprise after the last couple weeks. The verdict is guilty. It has to be because God's a good judge which might sound a little strange that a good judge would give a guilty verdict. But have you guys been following the, the Larry Nasser case at all? So if, if you don't know about that, he's, he's this kind of dirt ball of a dude that um, abused hundreds of women um, in kind of gymnastic circles. And he's recently been brought to court and he's been sentenced to, I think, like 150 years or something like that. Now, let me ask you, if you were sitting in that courtroom and you heard the testimonies of all of these people that have been hurt by him, and the judge looked at him and just said, you know what, I'm feeling gracious today. You can just kind of go free. Just go ahead and take off, don't do it next time. How would you feel? That wouldn't be a good judge, that'd be an evil judge, right? Because good judges have to punish evil. That's part of what it means to be good. And here's the proper verdict in your case. Eternal judgment. Separation from the source of goodness forever. And that isn't overkill. That's just what you and I deserve. So here's the verdict from God. Lust. Guilty. Pride. Guilty. Selfishness. Guilty. Greed. Guilty. And here's the tension between God's love for you and his goodness. His love for you means he doesn't ever want to be separated from you, but his goodness means that he has to destroy evil. 
So he just can't let you off the hook. And so he, so he reads that verdict of guilty, but here's what justification is. The judge, God, he stands up off the bench and he walks down to you and he wraps you up in a big hug and then he takes the chains off of your wrist and he puts them on himself. And then he looks at the guards in the room and he says, take me instead of him. Take me instead of her. And he looks at you and he says, you're free. You're free to go. And then he looks at the guards and he says, take me out. And they escort him out to execution. Now here's the thing. I think a lot of us know that, at least to a degree, right? We know that we can be forgiven by God, and we, I think we, a lot of us know that we're forgiven through the punishment that Jesus receives for our sins. But even if that wasn't crazy enough, there's more, right? Justification is not just a negative term, it's a positive one. And so right before he leaves the courtroom, he says, hey, hold on for a second. And then he reaches in his pockets and he pulls out his keys and his wallet and he tosses them to you. And he says, hey, everything I have is yours. You can have my car, you can have my money, you can have my inheritance, you can have my family. Go enjoy it. And then he just walks out. That's justification. You get everything that God has. In other words, God takes his righteousness, his goodness, his blessing, his right standing, and he says, here you go, I'll trade you. It's like the worst baseball card trade in history. You get his righteousness, and he takes on your guilt and punishment. That's how you get righteousness. It has to be given to you. That's what justification means. And all of that happens in a moment. There's a moment in time when you're dead in sin and Jesus looks at you and he says, wake up. And you come to life. It's where your fundamental identity and destiny change. And, and a lot of you talk about your story, right? About Christianity, about how you came to know Jesus. And you'll say, I've been a Christian my entire life. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. You can't grow up a Christian. There's a moment in time when God has to look at you and has to say, you're okay with me. And when he just hands you righteousness, that's the moment that you become a Christian. And here's the implication of that. In Christ, you are unshakable. You are unshakable. Like nobody can take that gift away from you. You can't even take that gift away from you. This is nuts, and I'm a little nervous to say it, but it's true. You could leave Saul Company tonight. If you're in Christ, if you've been justified by Jesus, you could leave Saul Company tonight. You could walk over to like Sally's Saloon or whatever it's called right there, a bar, get hammered, get high, go home and sleep with whoever you want, and it would change nothing about your standing before Jesus. Your sin is irrelevant to your standing before him. And you're like, dude, that's, that's messed up. Like, that's got to be heresy. That can't be true. I know it feels weird to me, but look, that's the ridiculousness of grace. That's the audacity of this God that just says, hey, it's not about you. It's about me. It's not about your character. It's about my character. And it means that if you're in Christ, he will never leave you. There's nothing you can do. You can run away and he will chase you down and he's faster than you. He'll come get you. That's what it means 
to be in Christ. And here's the deal. Some of you are like, you're great, but you're just kind of Eeyore's. You're just kind of sad all the time. And, and okay, like there's real, there's sad stuff about life. I get it. And Christians should feel that deeply. But we also, here's what justification means is that you can choose joy in any circumstance. Because like yesterday you were dead and now you're alive. That's something we're celebrating. Like that's all right. That's some decent news. We should be people that radiate joy, not always happiness, but to have this steadfast hope because we've been forgiven. All right, so that's justification. Second big word, redemption. Verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right, so what does redemption mean? It means to be purchased out of slavery, purchased out of slavery. Have you guys ever heard of Anthony Burns? Anthony Burns. He was a slave that was born in Virginia in 1834, and he was a slave for 20 years. And I don't have to describe to you like the, the type of messed up life that that was and how hard that would have been for him, right? Like imagine for 20 years never making a decision on your own, never, never waking up and just saying, this is how I'm going to live today and choosing to go live that way. And he made, after 20 years of slavery, he made this crazy escape and he, and he ended up in Boston. And there were some people there that were taking care of him and kind of protecting him, but eventually he got found out and he was arrested and he was tried. And then the military essentially sent him back. Can you imagine walking back to your slave owner? Like that was bad enough already. Imagine if you get a taste of freedom and then you gotta go back. And he went back and there was nothing that he could do about it. And there were some people that heard about Anthony and they wanted to rescue him. And so there was this, this pastor named Leonard Grimes who started knocking door to door, who talked to his congregation and they eventually raised $1,000, which is a bunch of money back then. And they went and they bought his freedom. And I can imagine that maybe Anthony like didn't know who was buying him and so he thought that he was just getting sold like a piece of merchandise to another slave owner and then he walked out to this guy Leonard who said, you're free. Go live how you want. What did they do for him? They redeemed him. They purchased him out of slavery. That's what Jesus did for you. And you might be saying... What do you mean I wasn't, I wasn't in slavery? Yes, you were. You were enslaved to sin. All you knew was sin. Sin isn't just behavior. It's a power that overtakes you. It's a part of your nature. It's a part of who you are that you can't control. And there was a price for it. What was the price for redemption? It was a life. His life for your life. And sin was wreaking havoc on your life and it owned you, it overpowered you. But in the resurrection, Jesus overpowered sin and now Jesus owns you. And he wants to teach you how to live like you're free. And here's what some of you believe. You believe that you're worthless. And you believe that because somebody's told you that. Or because you tell you that. And you don't really know what it's like to believe that you're valuable, that you're worth something. You have those negative like self-thoughts where you, you get one self-thought and then it just kind of spirals on you. 
guess what? That's your old master. That's who used to own you, but you don't have to listen anymore. Like if if Anthony's old slave master would have come back to him as a free man and would have started commanding him to do things, would have said, Anthony, get to work. You know what Anthony could have done? He could have walked up to him and looked him in the eyes and said, no, I'm not your slave. I'm free. And that's what you can do. Because you've been bought at a price and now that old master has nothing to hold against you. You don't get to decide the value of you. They don't get to decide the value of you. Jesus Christ gets to decide what you're worth and what you're worth is the life of the king of the universe. That's how valuable you are to him. Have you guys ever read The Scarlet Letter? It's one of my, it's one of my favorite books. And uh, long story short, if people are caught in sin, if they mess up, they have to wear this like scarlet letter, this, this letter on their shoulder that kind of marks them as broken, marks them as kind of gross, and they have to wear it around all the time. It's like a badge on them. Guys, some of you are walking around with a scarlet letter. Something that somebody's done to you, something that you've done to somebody else, and you're carrying the weight of it and you feel the shame of it, and you feel that all the time, and you feel like it defines you. And this is what I'm saying to you. The mark on your life is the empty tomb. That's the only mark that you carry, is the mark of freedom, that Jesus has set you free. You don't have to carry it anymore because he carried it for you, and then he got out of the grave to conquer sin and death forever, to reclaim his good world that you're a part of, to reclaim you. He came and he bought you and he pulled you into his family, and now you don't have to identify with that old master anymore because you're worth everything to him. You're eternally valuable in his sight, and that's who you are now. And so wear it. Act like it. Live like it. Redemption. All right, next word, propitiation. Propitiation. So how do we know that those things are true, that God has actually forgiven us? How do we know that we're actually really free, that our sin isn't held against us? Because of propitiation. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So here's what propitiation means. It means a wrath-bearing sacrifice. A wrath-bearing sacrifice. If you were here the first semester, you might remember my buddy Dave Livingston came and talked, and he talked about Abraham and Isaac. And I love that story. And if, if you don't know that story, long story short, God asked this guy, Abraham, to put his son Isaac on an altar and to offer him as a sacrifice, to, to kill him. And it, it, it's symbolism, it's imagery that God can't leave sin unpunished because of, because of his wrath towards it. That, that because of sin, somebody has to die. Right, and so, so Abraham, just picture what this was like for him. Abraham is standing over his son whom he loves with a knife. He's standing over him, and at the last second, God says, Abraham, don't do it. And then he gives him a a lamb instead to sacrifice. And look, it was foreshadowing of what God would have to do to bring his people back to him. And it's against that backdrop that Jesus comes and he walks the earth. And Jesus calls himself the lamb of God. And he's essentially saying, I'm the sacrifice that God 
has provided, and he climbs up on an altar, the cross. And the thing that's different about this story that every other story is pointing to is that this time God doesn't hold back his hand. He lets it drop on his son. Why? Because God's wrath towards sin had to fall on someone. And you deserved it, but God didn't want it to fall on you, so he put it on his son. And Jesus isn't just taking on the physical pain of the cross, he's taking on separation from the Father so that we don't ever have to experience that separation. And it's through that act that Jesus became a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. It's one of my favorite memories from when I was a kid was going to, to football games with my dad. And I don't remember all the games or whatever, but there's one specific game that I, I do remember. And we'd always park in the same spot and we'd have to cross this busy road, kind of play Frogger across it. And this one day, it was my dad, my sister, and my sister's friend, Jen Eller. And we were walking up to the road and I was bored, so I was tossing this football up and catching it, tossing it up and catching it. And then I went to throw it the third time and I tossed it up and I, and I tossed it out like in front of me a little too far and I'm like looking at this football and I don't realize that I've just walked into the middle of the road. And so I'm looking up at the football, no idea what's going on and all of a sudden I feel this hand on the back of my shirt and I literally get, I was a little kid, I literally am getting pulled through midair and as I'm in the middle of the air, I feel the whoosh of a car go past and I'm like laying on the ground and I look up at Jen Eller of all people who she saw the car coming and she reached out and she grabbed me by the back of my shirt and, and it was such a close call that I was still in the air when the car went past. Like I absolutely would have died. That's how Jesus saves you. Like, like some of us think that we have something to do with this or if we can muster up enough faith, then God will kind of look down on us, then he can save us. But here's what's happening is you were running into the road. You were running towards wrath and you weren't looking anywhere else but straight ahead. And Jesus, he on his own initiative went in and he reached out and he grabbed you and he pulled you out of the way of wrath. That's what it's like to be saved. That's what Jesus has done. And here's the implications of that is we tend to think that forgiveness is a feeling, right? There's days where you wake up and you feel great and you feel like you're in the forgiveness of God and you're just going and there's days where you wake up and you just feel like a pile <laughs> and you think that God has left you. But this is what that means. Your forgiveness is a historical fact. When you wake up and you feel like there's no way that God can love you or when you feel like you don't want to pursue him or you feel like you don't have a relationship with him, did Jesus die on the cross? Yes, then you're forgiven, then you're saved because it's not based on your ability to feel him, it's based on him reaching out and grabbing you out of the way of God's wrath and bringing you into his family. Your forgiveness is a historical fact, that's the implication. And so just to kind of summarize all this, right? So justification, your standing with God is secure. It doesn't change. Redemption, you're free. Sin isn't your master. And the foundation of those is propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice of Jesus. So the question is, is how do we get it? 
one simple answer. Faith. It's just faith. And look, faith isn't a work, right? It, it, it's, it's not something that you sort of need to muster up to get to God. It, here's what faith is, saying, Jesus, I got nothing. I got nothing to offer you. I got no way of saving myself. Would you have mercy on me? Would you let me in? I want to trust you instead of trusting me. It's the only way in because Jesus will not compete with you to save you. He'll be the only way that you will be saved and he wants to know if you're going to let him and that's what faith is. So some of you have, have heard me uh, tell this story before but it's fine, you can deal with it. It reminds me of God so I wanted to tell it again. So a couple years ago, I took a trip to, to Cali. And if this wasn't the random road trip. I'll tell you guys about that one another time. This is a different trip to Cali, multiple trips to Cali, no big deal, guys. Um, so I took a trip to Cali to my, to my cousin's wedding. And before the wedding started, he called me and he was like, hey, dude, you got to bring your golf clubs. And I love to golf, so I was like, that sounds like fun, but it's a pain in the butt to take the clubs. I'm not going to do whatever. He's like, no, 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 trust me you're going to want to play this course, bring your golf clubs. So I was like, fine, whatever, all right, I'll bring my clubs. And so I get there, and he's like, hey, man, I, I got you the hookups. I got you a connection on a course. And I'm like, all right. So he tells me the course name, and, and, and essentially all he told me was, hey, just ask for this guy. And I, I actually forget his name, so we're going to call him Mr. Williams, all right? Just pretend like that's his name. And he's like, just ask for Mr. Williams, I was like, all right, fair enough. So I take off driving to this course, and we kind of get out of L.A., kind of get out of the city, and I get into these foothills, and, and my buddy that was with me kind of elbows me, and he's like, dude, look at these houses. And I look up, and there's like multi-million dollar mansions in the foothills, and I'm just kind of cruising through them, and we're going up and up, and then we start getting to uh, like gated communities. And so we pull up, and there's these like mall cops and phone booths sitting there like checking names off of a list. And uh, we pull up and they're like, hey, like, who are you, you here to see? And I'm like, Mr. Williams? And they're like, all right, you can go. And they just open it up. And so I drive up and we're cruising up through more multi-million dollar mansions. And then we turn this corner and I see like one of the most ridiculous buildings I've ever seen in my life. And it's the clubhouse. And we roll up to the parking lot of this clubhouse and there are like cars there that cost more than my house. There's like Ferraris and Lamborghinis with like the suicide door things, you know. And I just, just for, for context, I drive a 2000 Honda Accord, rusted out, all right? Like just for context. So I'm rolling in like, uh, not sure what's happening. And we park and I get out of the car and there's these guys that like run up and take my golf clubs. And I'm kind of freaked out like what's happening, but that's just their job. There's just dudes that take your golf clubs from your car to the clubhouse. So you don't ever have to carry them. And they take them around back behind the clubhouse. And I roll into the clubhouse and there's like a marble staircase. And then there's a dude just chilling there at nine in the morning, smoking a cigar, just the dude smoking a stogie. And I'm like, where am I? And then we roll down this marble staircase and there's this guy in a suit behind this like counter thing. And he's like, hey, can I, can I help you with something? And I'm like, yeah, my name's Jordan Adams. Like, I know this guy. 
which I don't actually know him. I've never met him, but it's like, yeah, I know this guy. And they're like, oh yeah, Mr. Adams, we've been expecting you. And I'm actually at this point like starting to panic because I, well, I, I know that sounds creepy, but I'm panicking for other reasons. And it's that I'm thinking that I'm about to pay for this round of golf. And I'm like, I genuinely don't know if I have enough money in my bank account. And so I like start to pull out my wallet and I'm just freaking out. And the guy just looks at it and literally just shakes it off. He's like, no, 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 everything's taken care of. And he hands me this like free bucket of golf balls. He's like, hey, go over to the cooler, get whatever drink you want. You go down to the practice range, you can hit for as long as you want. So I roll down to the practice range with like three drinks that I took for free. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm hitting golf balls. And then I go up to the first tee on one of the most beautiful courses I've ever played. And I, I'm like assigned to play with these dudes. And I introduce myself to them. And they're two CEOs of tech companies in Simi Valley. So me and these CEOs play this round of golf. That's what it's like to know Jesus. Like, maybe the golfing thing, actually. There might be golfing in heaven. But here's what happens. You don't belong there. Like, you don't belong in the people of God. But you will stand before God and he'll, and he'll say, who are you? And you say your name, you're not getting in. But you say one simple name, Jesus Christ. And the door is open for you. And under his name, you get everything that he has and you get treated the way that he deserves to be treated. And you just walk into the people of God and the kingdom of God and you just act like you own the place. You act like you deserve to be there because Jesus Christ knows you and he can vouch for you. And he talks to his buddies and he says, hey, she's with me, let her in. And you just walk into the presence of God. And you just walk into eternity to know him forever and have everything that he has. That's what it's like to know Jesus. There's one name that you need to know and it's not your name, it's his. You want to be in? One name. Jesus Christ. And on the day of judgment, you still won't have any excuses, but you can have a savior. Let me pray. Jesus, you've been ridiculously good to us and it doesn't make any sense. But we praise you. Like, and I, I praise you that that's true. That, that one day I'll get to, to walk into eternity and just say your name, and I'm going to get everything that you deserve. And that's all you. Like, we didn't do a thing to earn that. You did that for us. That's nuts. And you're worthy of our praise. Um, and Jesus, if, if there's somebody here that's just been, like, holding on to something, holding on to old guilt or holding on to their effort to be impressive, help them to just let it go. And when we sing worship songs to you, would we mean it? Would we respond appropriately to your just crazy love for us? Amen.